This is our final week of our series on God is the Gospel. I've called this message the Scarlet Cord, and I'd be grateful if you'd turn, please, to Joshua chapter 2. We're going to be looking together at one of the most kind and precious salvation stories that you're ever going to come across in your entire life, the story of Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. So I want us to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, and then we're going to flick over to chapter 6. We're going to do quite a bit of reading, but it's a great story, so listen up. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, Men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. And I do do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly. For you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. 
and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Fast forward then to Joshua chapter 6. The Israelites have been marching around Jericho for six days around the walls. And in verse 15, we rejoin the story on day 7. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is in within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house, and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a story we have here imbibed in Scripture. What a story of grace. Oh Lord, I pray with you, open our eyes this morning that we may behold the author of grace afresh. Lord, would we leave this room amazed? Would there be no individual leaving this room unaffected in their souls? Holy Spirit, would you, would you come then and minister to our souls? Would you break hearts? Would you break hard hearts where necessary? And would we be lost in wonder afresh as we consider this author of grace, this father of Rahab, is our author of grace and father too. Spirit, have your way. And would all glory go to you as we do this as worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things I've enjoyed about living in Australia is I've discovered that a lot of your television programs are indeed British. So all the things I'd be missing, although I did grow up on Home and Away and Neighbours, so it's kind of ironic, but um, now I really like British TV. So The Bill, absolute classic. I noticed that you've got that. What I like about it is it's the versions from 1978 rather than the, the modern-day ones. That's quite nice. The Vicar of Dibley. I saw that on the first night when we arrived. Loved that. That was great. Faulty Towers. I haven't seen that since I was about seven, but I appreciated the gesture. Uh, Doctor Who. We never liked that anyway. You can have it. And Coronation Street. 
which is like set in Manchester, which is like just a hilarious program. But again, you've got all the people in there that were characters about 15 years ago rather than, than modern day. But we like the fact that you do have so many British shows on. One of my favorites that I've just discovered has been on here is Rosemary and Time. Has anybody seen Rosemary and Time? Thank you very much. You are clearly Christians. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, this is, Rosemary and Time is an absolute top quality show. For those of you that have never seen it, it's two old ladies that are gardeners. So what they do for a living is, that, is they, they garden, but they're also detectives. Crafty, that. So they, they do the gardening, and as they do the gardening, it's like, oh, someone's died. So they happen to be on site to work out who it is. Now, there's a few things you need to learn about them. First of all, if they were your gardeners, you'd run a mile because wherever they are, someone dies. You know, the clue is in them rather than the people. But every show, they go to garden at some property and you enjoy them gardening, somebody dies. And then it's very Sherlock Holmes-esque in trying to work out who is it. And I like the show because I, like, I quite like gardening, but also I like the, the sort of murder mystery thing. And every single time, I could never, ever figure out who it was. And so every time you watch this, and when they eventually tell you it is, you just think, I can't, I can't believe it! Emma, get the kids! Look who it is! You're just so surprised that I never saw that one coming! I'm so dense! But there it is. And, and every time, the end of the show, you would finish the show with, with shock and surprise at just what has taken place. Well, in shadow form, that's the feeling we should get when we come to Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. Surprise and shock. This is one of the greatest salvation stories ever told, and yet it has involved in it the main character, somebody who is a complete shock and a complete surprise. Rahab, the city's prostitute. Everybody knows who she is. And yet God saves her. She was a prostitute. She was a sinful, obscure lady, a Canaanite, one of the enemies of Israel. As they come in to take the land, she is an enemy who is obscure, who is sinful, who is a prostitute. And yet what we nonetheless have in front of us is an incredible salvation story, an incredible story of amazing grace, an incredible story of God coming after this sinner, and saving her by his abounding grace. Folks, my prayer this morning is that as we examine this scripture together, we would be all the more amazed and consumed by the author of this grace. You see, for the last weeks, three weeks, we've been looking at God is the gospel. And my heart in that has just been to try and bring us back to the basics of what it's all about. The prize of God. And so we looked at Mary and Martha and the importance of building our lives around Jesus and actually spending time with Jesus. We looked then at Psalm 121 and just the joy of the fact that the one who we worship is near and trustworthy and great. Last week we looked at how God is enough, how he truly is the one that truly satisfies us in all ways and anything else that we go after is actually just a counterfeit God. But God alone is the one who satisfies. And this morning, to complete the series, I believe God wants us to allow the voice of Rahab to speak into our lives. That we'd be affected by her story. And that in being affected by her story, we'd realize our story isn't that much different. And we would all together then worship the author of grace all the more as we hear Rahab's voice. And so as Rahab really preaches to us this morning, there's three scenes to this text that we have to understand, three things that are going to influence and help us marvel at the incredible author of grace. And scene one is really in chapter two. 
I've entitled chapter 2, really this, the initiative of God in plucking Rahab from obscurity. It's about God. It's about God initiating, the the initiative of God in plucking Rahab from obscurity. You see, in Joshua chapter 2, Joshua has just been told by God that it's time. They're going to take the land. They're going to take Canaan, the place that God had always promised them. And so Joshua starts to prepare for that, and he knows with Jericho this is going to be pretty tough because there's two walls in Jericho. There's a six-foot wall as you go in, and then there's a gap, and then there's a 12-foot wall, and then you eventually get into the city. So he's aware this is going to be kind of tricky to take this with my dudes and their armies and those walls. So he sends in two spies to try and see, okay, where's the weaknesses? Where can we really get into this city and take this city for God by his grace? Well, those guys end up in Rahab's home very quickly. And the Bible doesn't tell us why. Humanly speaking, we could kind of guess why. Maybe it was because she's the prostitute. And so you're not going to be exactly conspicuous going into a prostitute's home, right? Because everybody does. So the spies may have just thought, well, we'll go in this home because it's the prostitute's home. Or they may have realized that this home is in the wall. And so this is a great place to go into and start to look out the window and spy out the land so we can realize how can we really take this wall. And if anybody comes, it's at least in the wall so we can get down the ropes and and go for our lives and go to the hills. Humanly speaking, it was probably one of those two options. But sovereignly speaking, as you put all this story together, sovereignly speaking in the storyline of the text, it's very clear why they have ended up in that house. They've ended up in that house because in God's compassionate loving, sovereign grace, he's decided that he's going to save the owner of the home, Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. That's a real shock. You see, why why Rahab? There would have been a king in the land. There probably would have been a queen in the land. There would have been noblemen. There would have been rich people. There would have been very wealthy and wise people. Maybe that if God had saved, they could have just influenced nations for him. And yet God chose to save Rahab, the prostitute. Was it because she was busy reading the Bible every day? And God was so compelled by, wow, you love me so much. No. Was she, was she praying every day, crying out to God for grace, just worshipping as a king? No, she's a prostitute. Was she living a life that God looked down and said, wow, you, this, you are so, so humble, so, so, so godly in and of yourself. I just want to save you. No, she's a prostitute. She's running away from God. And she's doing the very things that God despises in her life. God, in his grace, was going to save Rahab because before there was even time, in abounding grace, he had predestined her for adoption through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the only reason. That's why this day the spies knocked on her door. Not because of her, but because of God's incredible, compassionate grace. Folks, our stories are no different. We may not have been the prostitute of Jericho, but the only reason why you are here today knowing Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior is because at the right time he knocked on your door. That's how you made it. Because he came after you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says that realization this way. He says, when I was coming to Christ, I I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths, the doctrine of election, in my own soul, 
when they were, as John Bunyan said, burned into my soul as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I'd grown all of a sudden from a babe to a man, that I'd made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once and for all the clue to the truth of God. One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. I like that. The thought struck me. Only Spurgeon can say that. Don't you do that. The thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? Which in turn triggered an internal conversation in my mind. For I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. But how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment I saw. I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek him? Well, I prayed. But how did you come to pray? Well, I read the Bible. How did you come to read the Bible? You're dead in your transgressions and sins. And then you realize it's because in God's grace, he he came knocking on my door. He came pursuing me. He brought me from death to life. He opened my eyes in abounding and amazing grace that I could see the gospel for what it was in a way that before I was blind. That's what's happening here to Rahab. My friends, consider your calling. Not many of us in this room were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful and not many were of noble birth. We're not here because of something incredible about you. We're not here because of something incredible about me. I know me. I know you. I like you. We're not that incredible. We're here because God came after us. We're here because in his abounding, initiating, compassionate love, he pursued you and he initiated plucking you from obscurity just like he did Rahab. That is why we're here and that is why Rahab was saved. She's a prostitute. There wasn't anything in and of herself that was pursuing God, but he was pursuing her, which is the very reason why two spies knock on her door so that salvation can come as a means through them. Mark Webb says it this way. He says, God intentionally designed salvation so that no man can boast of it. He didn't merely arrange it so that boasting would be discouraged or kept to a minimum. He planned it so that boasting would be absolutely excluded. The truth that God shows you by his grace alone does absolutely that. Amen and amen. It does. What did you bring to your salvation? Your sin. That's it. What does God bring to your salvation? Well, to start off with, his initiative, his pursuit of you, his coming after you in grace and splendor. That is what happened to us, and that is what happened to Rahab. The story doesn't finish there. We then find scene two, which is the gift of God in Rahab's salvation. His gift of glorious salvation to her, which goes between chapter two and indeed chapter six. You see, these spies arrive at Rahab's door. They come in and they begin to talk to her. And all's going well 
And, and Rahab's response very quickly is one of fear and faith. She is scared stiff to start off with because she is aware that your God, he's real. I've heard about the Exodus. I've heard about the, 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 all that took place, the plagues. I've heard about the sea parting. Your God is straight up. And if he is going to take this city, I, I believe in him. She's, she's affected with fear, but she's also affected with faith because she realizes your God, who is the maker of heaven and earth, he can save me. Is there, is there any way? She responds immediately with that fear and faith. But as she cries out to these men, inquiring of these men as to how she could be saved, there's a knock at the door. And the king of Jericho has sent men to come after these men. They are now in great danger. So Rahab hides them. She hides them upstairs for a night. Later, she lets them down outside a window. And yet, as she lets them down outside the window, they give her an answer. She can be saved. And they hand over to her a small scarlet cord, a blood-red scarlet cord. And they say to her, you know what? Take this cord and tie it around the window and gather your family and huddle them together in, in this room. They mustn't go out this room because when God comes, he will strike down all of Jericho, but there will be one room in the wall that will remain. It will be the room with the scarlet cord on. So she gathers her family and they come together, huddled in a room, no doubt in great fear as to what is going to take place. And imagine it. We know the story, but they don't. So they are just sitting together as a wider family with a small scarlet cord on the window, gathered around with mums and dads and brothers and sisters and children, huddling together, wondering, will that scarlet cord be enough? Does this scene sound familiar to you? A moment where families huddle together, pointing to something that was on the doorpost or window of their lives, hoping that it would be enough? That's the point. You see, seven miles away in the Israelite camp at Gilgal, on the outskirts of Jericho, this day, Israel is celebrating the Passover. They're celebrating a day where God incredibly brought them out of captivity in Egypt. He brought them out through the captivity by the killing of a lamb, a spotless lamb that was exactly one year old. Each, ha- each father of a household would kill the lamb, he would take the blood and he would put it around the doorposts and as the angel of death came round, he would gather in the home with all of his family, hoping and trusting that the blood of the lamb around the doorposts would be enough. So seven miles away, Israel is celebrating that. They are marking the day when God in grace did that by taking the Passover lamb once again and enjoying it together as a Passover meal. What we have here now then is the Gentile Passover. Not with a lamb, but with a blood-red scarlet cord that is attached to her window as she wonders, will it be enough? Would it be enough? Yes. As the story begins to unfold, they march around Jericho. God comes with almighty vengeance and the whole wall disintegrates apart from one room. One distinct room that had a scarlet cord around it. Everybody else is slaughtered, but not that room. 
Because that room has been gloriously saved through a scarlet cord. See, the Passover lamb always pointed to Jesus. The scarlet cord pointed to the Passover lamb, which pointed to Jesus. What we have here is the Gentile Passover. God revealing that he's not only going to save this nation, but there is a way for other nations. There is a way for Gentiles to be saved by profound grace, so that even as God comes and wipes out, Gentiles can incredibly be saved. How cool is that? I love biblical theology. I think it's fascinating. I love the fact that the Old Testament, as you study it and you study the storylines, it unfolds. There's a storyline in Scripture that, that unfolds all the way through. Every page of the Old Testament whispers the name of Jesus Christ. It points us to him in shadows, in pointers, in symbols, and types. I love that. It's the way the Bible holds together. It's the thing that should give us so much confidence in the, in the unfolding mystery of Christ as we read the Old Testament and understand it. So in Genesis 3, we have the whole scene of the serpent crusher. As God addresses Satan as part of the curse, and he's to Satan, you know what, one day one will come, and although you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. And from that moment on, you're waiting to see throughout the Old Testament, who's the serpent crusher going to be? When is this one going to come? When is this Savior going to come who will defeat Satan once and for all? In Genesis chapter 22, we have Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, who God instructs to take his only son, Isaac, to Mount Moriah, the very place that archaeologists believe became Jerusalem and Calvary. That's why they spent so long trying to get to it. Because God wanted to show Abraham that on this mount, the Lord will provide. He didn't fully understand that. He didn't fully see that. But what it is quoted in Scripture is that Abraham saw the day of Christ and rejoiced as he held alive the knife about to plunge it into his son Isaac. The angel stopped him and God provided a ram as a substitute sacrifice instead of his son. As the storyline of Scripture unfolds, then you realize that this serpent crusher is in some way going to also be a substitutionary sacrifice. That's what Abraham began to realize and began to rejoice as the Old Testament storyline unfolded. In Genesis 49, then, we have the the glorious story of Joseph and Jacob. And everybody thinks it's all about Joseph and his technical cloak. Yeah, isn't it incredible? But it has not a lot to do with Joseph. The whole story is actually about Judah. It's about God saving Judah through Joseph. It's in chapter 49, verse 10. As Jacob prophesies over each of his boys, he gets to Judah and he says this. He says, For the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Listen. Until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. That's the Savior. You're waiting for the Savior. God in in grace saved Joseph and got him to prime minister so that ultimately Judah could be saved because it would be through the line of the tribe of Judah that the sovereign maker of the earth would come. So we have the serpent crusher. We have Abraham and Isaac. We have Jacob. Then we have the Passover in Exodus 12. And then we have the scarlet cord. And it continues to unfold all the way through the Old Testament scriptures. I love this. But I'll tell you what I love more. I love more the fact that 2,000 years ago, the serpent crusher, the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he came, and his name was Jesus Christ. And he came as the true savior of the world. The last of the Old Testament prophets, John, 
says, behold the Lamb of God, as he points to Jesus. All prophecies before that were pointing forward. John was pointing at him. Saying, behold, the Lamb of God. This is him. It's him. Behold the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. He knows that this is the serpent crusher. This is the king. This is the mighty creator who has come after us and through salvation will come. And Jesus then spends his entire ministry explaining to the crowds that through him, salvation was possible. By grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, salvation is completely and utterly accessible and has indeed arrived. Folks, I want to encourage you then. Throughout the Old Testament, particularly in this story of Rahab, a story that is simply about incredible grace. I want to encourage you as believers, do not then spend your lives seeking to smuggle in works into a salvation and a relationship that is all of grace. It's all of grace. What did Rahab bring? Nothing. She just hid in a room that had a scarlet cord on the front, and she hoped it would be enough. Did she start reading her Bible, panicking? Not really. She knows that wouldn't do anything. All of her hope rests on a scarlet cord. And I think as Christians, we start that way, don't we? We become Christians, and we're just amazed by grace. We're just amazed that I'm saved. I haven't done anything to deserve this. But Jesus Christ died for me, and I know salvation, and it's incredible. And yet one of the challenges we we can face as believers is we very quickly move off situations where instead of using things to experience grace, we start to believe the lie that those are things that are earning us grace. And that's where legalism begins. Let me explain further in CJ's book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, one of my favorite books. You should read it. If you haven't got it, get it. And he talks about a guy called Stuart who's a Christian plate spinner. And he spends time spinning plates. Stuart gets saved. And he becomes a Christian. He is, he's like Rahab. He is just absolutely amazed that God has saved him. He realizes that this was God's initiative. He realizes that Jesus Christ has died in my place. And I can rely on him fully for salvation. And then one of the guys in church stops Stuart and says, Listen, now you're a Christian. This is good, man. You should read your Bible. She said, Check it out. That sounds amazing. Why should I read my book? Well, it's going to help me build a relationship with God. It's going to help you experience God and experience his grace. So he thinks, Fantastic. So he gets a plate and he puts it on the spinner. And then somebody else says, listen, it's good that you read your Bible, but you've been a Christian like you know three days now and prayer is important too. It's good to pray. So he thinks that's good. So he puts the prayer one on and he gets that plate out and he starts spinning it. Over the coming weeks, he's, he's loving life as a Christian. He's amazed that God has saved him, that through Jesus and Christ alone that he can be accepted before God and spend time with him and reading the Bible and prayer. But somebody then begins to say, you know what, you need to like, become a member of a church because you need to be connected and committed and that's how you grow. And actually, you, you probably want to be a part of a life group. Oh, a fellowship group because you need to deal with sin. Have you heard of sanctification? Oh, oh, you haven't heard of sanctification? Yeah, that's the process of putting off your old self and putting on your new self. So you need to do that because that's part of being a Christian. So you get another plate out and, you know, he's going to be tired now because Christianity isn't quite as amazing as it was back then when he just became a Christian. And he's now going to roll about seven plates. And somebody says, you, you need to serve and give. How's your outreach going? You're not missional. You need to read Mark Driscoll's book and listen to Dave's sessions on In It to Win It. You need to do something because we need to be about the gospel and taking the gospel out. Oh, and Stuart, I've noticed you're married. Do you know what it is to lay your life down for your wife? 
And your kids, you need to shepherd their heart. You're just looking at obedience. That isn't going to work. And before you know it, Stuart has got a whole stage full of plates. And Stuart's relationship with God is going down the pan. Why? Here's why. When Stuart started, he was amazed by grace. He was amazed that God had chosen him. He was amazed that Jesus Christ died in his place and he knew that alone and that alone is enough. And when he started putting the plates on, all good plates, ways of experiencing grace, he's okay. But he starts to misunderstand. And as he puts each of these plates on, he starts to think that these aren't ways of experiencing grace, these are ways of earning grace. And so if he doesn't read his Bible, God's not probably going to be too pleased with him. And if he doesn't reach out, well, God's probably not going to accept him anymore because I mean, what am I, I'm not a very good Christian. And, and then he stops going to church and he, he falls away from life groups and he just thinks, I'm, I'm all over the shop. God, God must be so disappointed with me. You see, Stuart is a legalist. That's what legalism is. It's when we add something to the cross, thinking that that thing makes us acceptable before God. Rahab knew full well that Christ and Christ alone, that God, through the comfort of the scarlet cord, which pointed to the Passover, which pointed to Christ, would alone be enough. We must rest there as believers as well. We must. Show me an unhappy Christian, and I will more than often show you legalism. It's often the case. Show me a happy Christian, they are amazed by grace. They are. They think it's a scandal that they're a Christian. They know that their Bible reading and their prayer doesn't contribute to their acceptability before God. That's ludicrous. Because what we're saying in that is the cross of Christ wasn't enough. It's the cross of Christ plus my Bible reading, plus my prayer, plus my outreach, plus my parenting. No, it's not. It's not. We need to learn from Mr. Dixon. He says it this way, just a wonderful quote. He says, For I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad, cast them in a heap before the Lord, and fled from them both. And I have instead betaken myself to the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him I have a sweet peace. Isn't that wonderful? My friends, I believe God wants us as believers to have a sweet peace. That comes from resting in the scarlet cord alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We sing, Jesus paid it all. If we believe it, we must find rest in that. Do you know what? God sings over you, not because of what you do. God sings over you in grace because of what he's done. Because of what Jesus Christ has done in your place. Rahab gets it. In grace, she realizes that God has not only shown a great initiative, but God has saved her. And then comes the final scene, scene three. In chapter 6, which is the kindness of God in ongoing grace and purpose. This is where this story becomes even more compelling as to the author of grace. See, Rahab, along with her family, were indeed saved. But the big question is, what's going to happen now? Don't you think? I mean, sure, save her. But what's going to happen now? Because she's a prostitute. So let's bring her in. Let's, you know, thanks very much. It's your lucky day. Spies knocked on your door. On your way, you're saved, you're still alive. But that is not what God does. Check out what God does next, because this is profound grace. God doesn't just save Rahab and send her on away. Likewise, he doesn't just say to Rahab, look, you're not an Israelite, so sit on the outskirts. 
now and again, come in for coffee, that's fine, but really, you're not one of us. He doesn't just sit her on the edge and then seek to tolerate her and just let her watch. No, in profound grace, he brings her very near. He brings her in. The prostitute of Jericho, he brings, he brings close. He gave Rahab a new home, accepting her into the Israelite family. Within that family, he then began to care for her. He hemmed her in both behind and before. All of the promises to Israel were now promises to, to her. His protection, the truth that he would now be a shade at her right hand, the truth that he would not allow her feet to, to slumber, to, to, to stumble. He would protect her as a great keeper, as a guard. He begins to adopt her into the very family of God. And in that process, he himself then gave her purpose. Uh, what an incredible purpose she had. See, keep your finger in Joshua 6. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Let's read this first paragraph together. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminabab, and Aminabab the father of Neshon, and Neshon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Isn't that incredible? God just doesn't sit her outside. He brings her near. He accepts her as part of the family. He begins to care for her. And he gives her incredible purpose. See, in time, Rahab married Salmon. Salmon was from the line of Judah. God then gave her a child, which he called Boaz. And he in time married Ruth. Remember Boaz, the kinsman redeemer? And the whole story of Ruth, and you think, man, how kind is that guy? How, how kind of the Lord to provide Boaz for a lady that, that it wasn't going to make sense to marry in any shape or form, and yet he cared for her with such grace and mercy. It's not surprising when you realize his mum is Rahab. All of his life, he would have had a mother talking to him about grace and compassion. What's the fruit? Oh, he gets that in his soul. And he marries Ruth. They then in time had a son called Obed, who in time had a son called Jesse, who also then had a son called David, King David. Folks, God used Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, and he used her in the very line of Christ. She became King David's great-great-grandmother. And 28 generations later, one greater than King David came. The great king. The one whom scepter will never leave as he rules the nations. Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world. Isn't that incredible? God didn't just put her at the back and say, well, you're a prostitute. You leave it be. He calls her. 
and he forgives her and he sustains her and she, she is then brought into the very genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's grace. That's the author of grace. You know, maybe you're here today and figuratively speaking, you're sitting at the back seat in your heart. That's the way you oversee your life. Maybe you just feel like God is tolerating you. So sure, you're in, but you're a black sheep. And you keep out the way because you just think, I'm not like these other Christians. I'm not as good as they are, so I'm just going to sit out the way. I, I think God tolerates me. He's letting me in, but I'm not that good. Maybe you just think you're a bad Christian. And all the things you look at in your life, just think, I'm just shocking. I just don't do any of the things. I'm, and I'm trying, and I'm trying to grow, but I'm just going through a profound season of just messing up and, and missing God. And, and I want to want to serve the Lord, but oh, mate, I'm just all over the place. Maybe you feel that because of your past, God has written you off. Maybe you have a story. Let me tell you, many people in Sovereign Grace Church have stories. We all have stories. But maybe because of your story, you perceive God, God can't use you now. So sure, you're allowed to be a part of the church, but whoa, I can't do anything because, because of my past. Folks, I want to encourage you. The good news to you as a believer is God has not written you off. He is not tolerating you. He is not wheeling you in and saying, just sit at the back, thanks for playing. God in his grace is singing over you. He is passionate about you. How do I know? I'll tell you why I know. Because before there was even time, he chose you. He chose you just like Rahab. Knowing your life, he chose you to be predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ. At the right time then, he knocked on your door and he saved you in profound grace. All that it would cost him is the death of his only son, whom he loved more than a love that we can ever ask or imagine. And yet he crucified his son so that you could come in. So that you could be his prize. Not to tolerate you, but to bring you near. And in his grace then, he's now given you a part to play. As I read Ephesians 2 verse 10, and it talks about as each part does its work for the good works that God has prepared in advance, I don't see your name missed out. It's there. God saves us by grace. He sustains us by grace. And then he says, you know what? Now serve me. In the context of local churches where you are connected and committed, use your gifts for my glory. Be a part humbly and serve me. You may have a past. So does Rahab. But she's in the line of Jesus. And whatever your past is, Jesus Christ was clean. He's not tolerating you or withdrawing from you. He's singing over you passionately. Listen, Rahab's story, folks, is one of profound grace. From beginning to end, it is just one grace after another. And your story is no different. It may look different, different storyline, but ultimately running through it, it's just exactly the same. God in grace plucked you from obscurity. He then saved you by his grace. And now, because of his grace, he gives you ongoing care and indeed purpose. So I want to encourage you. In response, let our lives, therefore, be increasingly consumed and amazed with the author of grace. If there's one thing I want for us as a church, I want us to be a people who are amazed by God, who sit with Jesus and do so just, just amazed. And for all of us to feel like, what, what am I doing here? I'm the last person that should be a Christian. 
And yet God in his grace has pursued me, has saved me. Let those truths humble us and affect us and amaze us by his grace. Let us, therefore, ever increasingly be consumed and amazed with the author of grace. God is the gospel. He's the prize. So let us throw ourselves into loving him and being consumed and amazed by him. Just as Mark said last week, the bit of our life on the rope is about that big. And then we're dead and we're gone. What are we going to do with this? I'll tell you what I want us to do with this. I want us to be consumed with Jesus Christ. And then I want us to enjoy Jesus Christ. But I want us to be consumed with Jesus Christ. Let's not waste our lives. But let us be consumed with the author of grace, the one who pursued us and sustains us and will always sustain us. And in that, would it be our story? Let's pray. If I want you to stand with me as we finish in prayer. Well, Father, thank you for inscribing in Scripture such a profound story of grace. Thank you that we get to marvel at Rahab. And yet in marveling at Rahab, we very quickly look beyond Rahab and marvel at you. How incredible you are that you would initiate a saving process. How incredible you are that you would save her and her family, that you would then give her purpose. And yet, Lord, as we stand here, our stories are no different. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were running away from you. We were not living for you. We were living against you. We weren't pursuing you. No one sought the Lord. And yet you pursued us and sought us. Lord, help us to live lives then of incredible gratitude and praise to you. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. You are our everything. And so Lord, help us to be ever increasingly amazed by grace. Amazed at what you've done. Thankful and humbled and amazed as we live for your glory. Lord, thank you. Thank you for saving us. You are our everything. And Lord, let it all be about you.